Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's November the 18th on a chilly and damp afternoon in San Francisco. Uh, yesterday, I had the good fortune to go downtown for um, a physical interview with the distinguished science fiction writer, Neil Stevenson. He has a new book out on the environment, on our global warming crisis called Termination Shock, as so often with Stevenson. He's not a policy writer, he's a novelist. So um, he can be a little uh, elliptical when it comes to fixing the planet. Uh, but he did talk about carbon capture and storage uh, as one kind of solution. And he did suggest that perhaps uh, billionaires like Jeff Bezos, who he's worked with, and Elon Musk have a role in carbon capture. In fact, this headline caught my attention. Musk uh, is giving money to uh, $250,000, which isn't a lot of money for Musk, to a, a seaweed-based carbon cut capture startup. So uh, some people believe still in science, other believe in politics, uh, the COP26 summit, circus, whatever you want to call it, has just finished with a, a rather vague agreement between the Chinese and the United States. Certainly, uh, COP26 isn't um, enthusing everybody. Uh, Greta Thunberg has uh, famously, in her unique way, iconic way, described uh, it as uh, more blah, blah, blah. Um, and the real question, I think, remains, uh, uh, particularly in terms of the conversation I had yesterday with Neil Stevenson, is, is science enough? And as it happens, that's the title of a new book. It's not actually out yet. It's out next April, but I'm thrilled that its author... Aviva Chomsky is happy. It's quite unusual, actually, for authors to be willing to talk about a book before it comes out. Uh, but she's very generous, and she has generously talked about um, uh, discussing this new book, Is Science Enough? 40 Critical Questions About Climate Justice. Uh, Avi is joining me from uh, Salem, in, Salem in Massachusetts, just outside Boston. Uh, Avi, uh, thanks so much for appearing on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, this book, Is Science Enough? Um, 40 questions about saving the planet, I guess. Uh, are those enough? Did you have to edit out a lot of the questions? Because I can think of many more than 40. How did you figure out which were the important questions? Um, well, of course, I wrote the book first, and then I counted the questions, <laughs> and there were forty. So, um, you know, the 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 title came. Well, I already knew that questions was going to be in the title, but I didn't actually know exactly how many questions there were going to be until I was done. Um, but I divided the questions into basically five categories. Um, some of the, the first set looks at um, technical, technological, scientific questions. The second um, part of the book looks at political questions, policies. Um, the third set looks 
at individual kinds of actions um, that that uh, people discuss um, and organizations discuss. Um, the third looks at social, racial, and economic justice. And here I'm really getting into the, the heart of the book, I think, when I go into social, racial, and economic justice. And then the last section is, is called- the heart or the brain, Avi? Or both? <laughs> I think it's probably the heart in terms of wishful thinking, perhaps. Um, I guess, I, to be really wishful, I would say the heart and the brain work together here. Yeah, I agree. And then the, the fifth is... Um, the fifth is called... A, a meta-commentary, I guess. It's what a broaden... You, you, you talk about broadening the lens to sort of include everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the really big questions that I think draw together all of the themes that I raise in the early part of the book... Um, right, so those are the meta questions. We're, we're going to come back to some of these, but let's begin with this idea of carbon capture. And Stevenson's optimism, I think, as a scientist, one of the things that he said to me in the interview was that we've got to get beyond morality, get beyond in particular our sort of Judeo-Christian notions of guilt and focus on what we have to do. Uh, he he's fairly optimistic, I think, as a scientist and as a science writer. Uh, do you share his optimism about uh, science essentially being enough? And do you agree with him that we need to get beyond our own uh, sense of guilt with these things? So, um, first of all, you know, the question that I that I title the book with, Is Science Enough? Um, I should start out by saying, of course, I believe in science. Um, and I kind of take it for granted that readers of the book are going to be people who believe in science. That is, people who don't believe in the sci science of climate change are going to be reading other books. They aren't going to come to me. Well, one wonders, uh, Avi, whether people who don't believe in science are able to read, are they? <laughs> oh, um, I know people who are able to read who don't believe in science. So. Um, so, so that's the starting point. That is, I think we take it for, for granted that I, and, and that I believe in science. Um, and I certainly believe in the science of climate change. I believe in the science of vaccines, um, but, but that's taken for granted. But I also, and this is like one of the really strong arguments of the book is that science, I, I believe that science is not enough. And, um, you know, just to look at an example that is very um, current in our world right now, in addition to climate change, and I'll go back to climate change in just a minute, um, you know, the pandemic. So, it, you know, science brought us the vaccine, and I am 100% behind that and appreciative of it. But science is not enough in that science can't distribute the vaccine. Um, that requires policy and policy is tied up. So, you know, why is it that that more people in the first world have received boosters than have people in the global south received first doses? You know, that's a political question, not a scientific question. So that's what I mean by science is not enough. Science can give us the facts, but then how do we act on those facts? Those are more political questions than scientific questions. Now, applying this back to climate change, 
Um, of course, there's been a lot of development in the science in the last 20 years, but the basic facts were well known half a century ago. Um, you know, the first climate meetings started taking place in the 1980s and the 1990s, and the basic facts were known then, but we haven't acted on those. Uh, every year since then, um, emissions have continued to rise. So why aren't we acting on those? Those are That's a political and economic question. Uh, Abby, how do we separate? You're not the, certainly the first or the last person to suggest that the politics and the technology or science of climate change are are, are, are entangled in a, in, a, in a very complicated way. In fact, um, we had the, the Boston-based uh, head of the BU, uh, BU Medical School, Sandra Galeo, on the show making that argument. We also had your friend Stan Cox connecting fixing politics with fixing the planet. How do we disentangle them? In, in other words, how do you write about climate justice in a manageable way, I mean, your book's two or 300 pages, without addressing everything? Um, you are ruthless in cutting. Um, the book I actually wrote was probably twice as long as this. And when I proposed the idea to my editor at Beacon Press, um, she advised a book of 60,000 words. And um, I really liked that because I wanted something that would be readable, something that would be accessible, something that I could assign to my students, that's something that would be affordable. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I wrote a lot and then I cut a lot. Cutting is hard. Well, as you say in the beginning of the book, um, uh, and I'm quoting you here, this book's contribution um, you, you, you write literature on climate change has proliferated over the last uh, over the past decade as have popular awareness, media attention, political mobilization and high school and university classes. Yet there is no single short accessible book that breaks down the complexities, terminology, disagreements and issues in the debates for activists, students and the general interested public. This book proposes to be such a primer. That's astonishing. I wonder why you think that's the case, that your book is one of the first introductory texts on making sense of climate justice. Hmm. So I guess one thing that I would say is that um, teaching at a, at a regional state university um, has really helped me become a reader for the general public in a way that many academics aren't because they're more immersed in um, more elite institutions and um, surrounded by very highly educated people all the time. So that could be part of it. Um, and you know, this is not the first book that I've written for Beacon Press. Um, the first couple of books that I wrote for Beacon were on immigration. And, um, you know, immigration is an area that I have studied for many years, and I consider myself a, like an academic yeah, specialist. Yeah, the, the, the on book immigration. on immigration is, um, I think this is the one, they take yeah. our jobs and 20 other myths about immigration. You certainly like numbers. This new book has 
40 and you have 20 year do you, do you think that helps you make sense of books when you boil everything down to certain amounts well not all of my books are numbered like that but um i definitely had they take our jobs in mind as a kind of a model for this book on climate change um but what struck me when i decided to write the book about immigration is that there was so much amazing scholarship out there but there really was hardly anything that I could assign to an, a, like an, a first year undergraduate class. So that's what I was aiming at. And in a way I felt like, you know, as an academic, I'm supposed to be writing books based on original research. And um, my immigration book was not really based on original research. It was a work of synthesis, trying to make um, work that is well known in the scholarly community accessible to a more general public. What do you think of the role of fiction? I'm sure you haven't read um, Stevenson's books. I, I don't want to put you on the spot on that, but I hear a lot of interviews with distinguished fiction writers and, and many of them have conversations about the climate. It's very hard to write a contemporary novel these days without having something about our climate crisis. What's the difference, do you think, in terms of responsibility of writers between fiction and nonfiction? I'm not a writer of fiction. Um, I'm a very avid reader of fiction. And I'm not sure I would say that fiction writers have a responsibility to write about the climate. Um, I'm very compelled by fiction writing that engages with the climate catastrophe, but I'm compelled with many other kinds of fiction as well. Um, and of course, I'm engaged with fiction that was written a century or more ago, also before the issue of, um, you know, climate change was on anybody's radar. So, you know, I guess I have a great deal of respect for and um, almost awe for fiction writers. It's always kind of been my secret dream to write fiction someday, but I'm not sure I'll ever be able to do that. Um, so I, I would really hesitate to say that fiction writers have a responsibility. Um, and of course, nonfiction writers you know, there's amazing nonfiction in many different spheres that I think is really important. Um, so I, I, I guess I wouldn't say that every nonfiction writer has a responsibility to write about climate change either. But I guess I did feel that there was a need for a book that really went to the very basics to enable um, ordinary people to feel confident in talking what they were talking about. Like, you know, what was the... What, what were the Paris agreements? Um, what was the Kyoto Accord? Um, you know, what, uh, what is carbon capture? So the, there's a lot of terminology that people who are involved in um, climate activism are just so familiar with, but like, where do you go to find out all of these things? Uh, so I wanted to just kind of pull everything together in one place. I yeah, did it's very valuable. And, you know, I've done a lot of shows. I even have another show on the climate. But I found there was stuff in your book that I, I didn't really understand. We just sort of take a lot of these terms for granted. And often we're rather embarrassed if we don't understand them. So it's very valuable. I'm curious, Avi. We had Catherine uh, Hayhoe on the show recently. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her new book. But she suggests that what we need to do is talk about climate change, particularly to people who don't necessarily agree with us. What do you think the role of conversation is in, um, 
in, in, in trying to address this crisis? Well, I do feel that having a greater level of popular awareness, of popular engagement, and popular belief that solutions are possible um, is essential for um, creating the kind of pressure that we need to create on our elected representatives in this country. And I think in the United States, of course, we have an outsized responsibility because um, both cumulatively and per capita, we are by far the, the greatest contributors to climate change. And this is actually something interesting I talked about in my class last week, um, that um, you know people who pay sort of casual attention to this all have heard, oh, China is the biggest contributor. China is the biggest contributor. China is the one who has to solve this problem. And you know, we hear this from Biden. We hear this from John Kerry almost every day. We read it in the newspaper. But um, you know, that's a real distortion of the numbers to say that because, first of all, China has a much larger population than the United States. So per capita, people in China emit far less than do people in the United States. And secondly. Um, the United States has been uh, emitting far more than its share for over 100 years. And so it doesn't only matter what you emit in a single year. Um, our overall contribution to climate change puts us far beyond any other country. So in terms of responsibility for reducing emissions, uh, you know, it's it's on us. So so our ability to influence our our government, um, I think, is very dependent on what we understand and what and what we talk about. Avi, you end your final paragraph um, references uh, former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher when she argues or she argued there is no alternative to the capitalist world economy. Uh, you are a woman of the left and you make it clear that you think there is an alternative. We've had a number of different people on the show agreeing with you. I know you know Jason Hickel's new book, Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World. Also, Tim Jackson, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism. You don't explicitly have a question on climate justice, but do you think we can get to climate justice without at least at the very minimum radically reforming capitalism, if not getting beyond it as an economic system? Um, so I heavily cite both um, Jason Hickel and Tim Jackson in my book. And um, yeah, I mean, the basically the first three sections of the book look at the kinds of solutions that are currently being pursued and um, I try to explain why they are so far from um, accomplishing what we need to accomplish. And in the second two sections is where I get into social, racial, and economic justice and these larger questions. And I um, have been extremely intrigued with the concept of degrowth as a, as a, uh, a critique of capitalism ever since I first came across it. Um, and an admirer of some of the founders of, of the degrowth school of economics before they even coined the term um, in terms, but uh, no, absolutely, that uh, we must have a global redistribution of resources. The 
high consuming countries and peoples of the world. Um, you know, it's the top 10% that Oxfam just identified that if the top 10% continue to consume um, at the level that they're consuming, we're past 1.5, we're past two degrees, regardless of what the bottom 90% do. Um, and the top 10% um, are also uh, overwhelmingly live in the highly industrialized countries and overwhelmingly live in the United States. So um, that's the top global 10%. So, you know, there's energy poverty in many parts of the world. There are people who desperately need access to things like clean water and minimal electricity services. So the fact that we in the United States in particular overuse our fair share so egregiously that that has to change. And that kind of redistribution is like, it's not just socialism in one country, it's redistribution on a global level. And, you know, you can't do that under capitalism. Capitalism's about, capitalism's about accumulation. Um, and that's why we've accumulated and consumed so much. Avi, um, not everyone, even on the left, I think agree with you. I had the French economist, Lucas Chancel on the show year or two ago, and he makes the argument that one of the reasons why um, anti-environmentalism is so popular on, in populist movements like the, the Yellow Jackets in France and perhaps amongst the Trump people in the United States is that um, there's so much injustice in the first place and the poor don't really trust the wealthy intelligentsia on the coast to come up with solutions. Uh, plus the fact that, of course, as people like Joe Manchin have implied, uh, many of the working poor do the dirty jobs. And if you radically transform the economy, then you're going to take away their jobs too. What, what would you make of that kind of critique? Um, well, first of all, the global poor, not only um, have they not contributed anything to climate change. Um, they also are the most vulnerable to the effects of climate change. That is, they don't have the resource. They tend to live in more fragile environments, um, whether urban or rural poor, and um, they don't have the resources to protect themselves from climate change. So when we talk about adaptation, it's really adaptation for the rich and powerful. Um, and another aspect of this adaptation for the rich and powerful um, in the work of Todd Miller uh, and others, but looks at how, how much the national security apparatuses of the United States and Europe understand that climate change is uprooting and dispossessing and um, putting in peril the global poor, the poor in the global South. And that's why even while there's climate denialism going on, like in the Trump administration, um, the Pentagon and the Department of Homeland Security are, are demanding and receiving resources to adapt to climate change by building walls um, and by militarizing borders. And they're very clear cut about the, um, the threat that climate change poses to national security, so-called in the form of climate refugees desperately fleeing their countries to come to the United States. And um, yeah, yeah, that seems to be your argument. Certainly you, you had a piece in the, in the walls, uh, I think in the Washington post about the root cause of Central American migration, which you say is the United States and is obviously 
a consequence both of the environmental crisis in Central America. The same is true of the Middle East, too. Well, I'm not sure if America is quite as responsible for that. They certainly have a role. Um, well, we have played an enormous role in arming the countries of the Middle East. So, uh, Let's talk about our individual responsibility, um, uh, Avi. Uh, we had Erin uh, uh, Brockovich on the show last year. She talked about top 12 actions. She had a book out, Superman Isn't Coming. We're all responsible to manage ourselves. You have a section in the book, in your book on individual responsibility. You talk about whether or not we should buy a Prius or, or borrow uh, Uber or Lyft cars, many other issues. What's your sense of the top one or two issues when it comes to personal responsibility in terms of addressing climate justice? Um, so all of those things on that list that Aaron Brockovich suggested in terms of their um, climate impact, I would say I agree with. Um, but... Where I would disagree is that is, and they're in the right order. Like, you know, what what what's the emissions impact going to be of having one fewer child? What's the emissions impact going to be of living car free? Like those are all there and they're all in the right order. Um, light bulbs are at the very bottom. Uh, but where I would um, challenge that list and I do, I mean, I talk about all of those things in my book um, is that one single person taking all of those actions is going to make exactly zero difference. Um, and in fact, I didn't put this in the book, but sometimes um, in conversation, I bring this up, like really, if you want to take an individual action that's going to lower your individual carbon footprint, um, the best way you can do it is not to be born at all. Um, well, I don't know if we have a choice about that. Well, um, but uh, but that doesn't address the larger problem. So um, in the end, what I say is the most important individual action you can take is uh, to be an activist. That is to try to change the system. And you know, I talk about lots of different ways that you can get involved to do that. And you know, some of those actions, like suppose you go car free, um, the very fact of you, the individual, going car free is going to have zero impact on the climate. Um, but Maybe by going car free, you can become a transportation activist. Um, so, you know, your own individual actions are most important in terms of their public impact and how they motivate you to become publicly active rather than on the, uh, you know, out of the however many billion people we are right now, six, seven, um, changing what one of those does, even. And, you know, if, you, if you're Jeff Bezos, you know, avoiding your space flight might. Some people might be watching this and saying, oh, my God, we've got another Chomsky telling us to be activists. Um, do you think that the left itself needs to rethink itself in the, in the face of climate crisis? Have there been issues that force people on the left like yourself and Jason Hickel and, and Tim Jackson and so many others to rethink um, their understanding. I'm also curious about your father, um, uh, uh, Noam Chomsky, of course. Uh, I mean, you don't speak for him, but I'm curious, has the climate crisis resulted in, in a degree of crisis on the left? After all, Labour 
capitalism, they're not quite as central as they were, or perhaps they are. Well, I mean, I think that the issue of global economic inequality has been a very important issue for the left um, for quite some time now. Um, but I think what some authors like Hickel and I are trying to do is point out how deeply connected the issues of climate chaos and global economic inequality are. So I think for many climate activists, um, they have not yet made that that leap, that connection. You talk in the book, uh, you, you make re some reference to Kate Raworth's notion of donut economics. Um, my other show is called Regenerate, and it's all about what we call fostering the transition to a regenerative economy, which means rethinking particularly the nature of the land. Uh, um, I uh, so I, I'm curious. Do you think that Raworth's notion of economics, and particularly of rethinking the land, of perhaps rewilding the land and going back to a new kind of ag agriculture, do you think that that is a, a credible argument in the face of global warming? Um, well, I think it's part of it, um, but I would see it. Um, more in terms of you know when when uh, when Kate Raworth puts together the the donut, she's really looking um, at this idea that um, that the economy should not be about producing as much as possible and growing. That there that we need to think of the economy as having an outer rim and an inner rim. So the inner rim is when the economy is not producing enough to satisfy basic needs. The inner circle is the satisfaction of basic needs. So the economy has to be big enough to satisfy basic human needs for healthcare, for education, and she, um, you know, uh, lists certain basic human needs that everyone on the planet has a right to. Um, but if the economy, the outer rim of the donut is uh, environmental destruction and on a number of different grounds, which some of which she takes from the um, Stockholm Environmental Institute that has put together this idea of planetary boundaries um, from a scientific perspective. She's an economist, um, Rayworth. So, so she's, uh, using the science to, to talk about economic change. Um, but I think the idea of the donut or the planetary boundaries is a really compelling one in that um, instead of saying that the purpose of the economy is simply to produce as much as possible, um, the purpose of the economy is to distribute, in, to produce as little as possible um, in terms of the environmental destruction that all production entails and to distribute it so that we can meet the basic human needs of the whole planet. Uh, Avi, um, I'm talking to you from Silicon Valley and where people now are talking endlessly about something we call out here Web3, which is a, peer -to a new kind of peer-to-peer -peer economy perhaps reflected in cryptocurrency and, 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 and other rather anarchic um, restructuring of, of, of business and, and, and of life. Uh, I also, we, we talked about David Graeber's new book, he's unfortunately no longer with us, The Dawn of Everything, which reflects uh, a new thinking of anarchism. Do you think that 
Silicon Valley can help address these issues with restructuring the internet, restructuring digital infrastructure with radical new initiatives like cryptocurrency? Or is that just more of the same capitalism dressed up in uh, collaborative clothing? Um, I would say as it's currently structured, um, Silicon Valley is not going to bring us any solutions. And um, I don't actually talk about cryptocurrency in the book, but you know, the mining of cryptocurrency is a huge energy drain. It is based 100% on fossil fuels. So the idea that there's this clean technological economy that is not based on the exploitation of labor and the exploitation of nature, that's not happening in Silicon Valley. Like who's cleaning the campuses? Who's mining the uh, the lithium for the batteries? Who, uh, you know, who's dealing with the toxic e-waste? Um, Silicon Valley in a techno technological sense is not the answer. And I do have a section on um, Uber and Lyft uh, talking about how they use this, um, you know, this terminology of a sharing economy, but there's nothing shared about Uber and Lyft. It's a purely money-making operation that exploits workers and pollutes the environment. Um, you know, we do have a kind of ride sharing that already existed before Uber and Lyft. It's called public transportation. Um, some of the solutions are are just like so obvious and so basic. And if we let ourselves get carried away with these, uh, you know, technological fantasies, we lose track of what is it that we're actually trying to do. Well, yeah, certainly uh, is science enough. 40 critical questions about climate justice doesn't let us get away with anything you didn't let yourself get away with it Arby. you boiled it down it's it's um it's a very rich book and it covers a lot of themes i'm, I'm thrilled that you've written it and i'm very excited that it's going to come out next year perhaps you'll come back on the show in april when it's out um you're talking to me as i said from uh salem massachusetts uh famous for its witches what uh, else should people be reading in november 2021 Arby? Um, As we'll we wait for your new book, we've got four or five more months to wait until it hits the bookshelves. Um, well, I definitely recommend two of the books that we already talked about, Jason Hickel's and Stan Cox's. Um, and I would also recommend a really wonderful um, speculative fiction um, by Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, Ministry for the Future, which... I have found really made a big impact on me in terms of, and has on other people too. Um, I read it while I was working on this book in terms of thinking like, what kinds of change do we need and how can we make them? Um, Robinson really uh, engages with some very big political and economic uh, and scientific and pseudo-scientific questions in, and science fiction-y questions in the book. So, um, I found it strangely optimistic, and I don't find many things optimistic these days. Well, uh, Aviva Chomsky, the author of uh, Is Science Enough? I think the fact that you cited a novel uh, as an important text to make sense of our climate crisis suggests that science isn't enough, but it's certainly part of the solution. Thank you so much for coming on the show, uh, Avi. And, and, and as I said, I really appreciate your generosity in talking about a book that hasn't come out yet. Most people aren't willing to do that. And I'd love to have you back on in April or May of next year and talk more. There's so much more to talk about. So keep well. 
good luck with the book and we'll we'll talk in the new year thank you again great thank you so much thanks so much for watching this keen on show i hope you were inspired in some way i hope you found it interesting and if you want more of these kinds of shows you need to subscribe uh to the podcast uh on the apple or or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms, all major podcast platforms carry the Keen On Show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keen On show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com, or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of of people with interesting new books and projects which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keen On. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant future.